One of our guests this week told us in the United States, agriculture is essential to our cultural identity. And it always has been. Jefferson believed the country should live out this agrarian ideal. He said those who labored in the earth were the chosen people of God. But that vision didn't translate in the same way on this side of the 100th meridian. Because when you're talking about water in an increasingly arid West, people are beginning to wonder if it's time to rethink agriculture. The kinds of crops we grow, the way we grow them. It would be hard to give up the myth of working the land. And even if you stopped growing alfalfa in Utah, one farmer this week told us you'd just end up growing houses. And do we want that? Join us for Radio West after this. KUER has a new way for you to communicate with us. We're calling it Tell KUER. Tell KUER is a feature in our mobile app that allows you to send voice messages to the station. Let us know how we're doing, why you listen, or what you'd like to hear more of. Got an idea for a local news story? It's a great place to drop us a line about that, too. Send us a voice message with Tell KUER and find it in the menu of KUER's mobile app. Here in the city, Salt Lake City, and all along the urban part of the Wasatch Front, we've been talking a lot about water in the Great Salt Lake. And the conversation has started to shift toward agriculture. By far, most of the water being diverted goes to farms and ranches. So people are asking, shouldn't they bear at least part of the burden of restoring the health of the lake? Up at J.C.'s Country Diner in Tremont, There are three different crowds, different waves of farmers and ranchers that gather in a booth every day to drink coffee and shoot the breeze. You've got the early birds who get there before six. There's a group that comes in midday. And then there's the five o'clock crowd. Galen Anderson and Wayne Aoki are part of the midday guys. They've been working the land in Box Elder County their whole lives. And they also talk about water and the lake. And they know what people are saying. They take the water away from farmers. Where are you going to get your groceries from? Beef, hamburger, steaks, chicken. <coughs> where, where's that going to come from? Not out of Salt Lake City or Ogden. It's coming from this area up here. The majority of the water users. Mm-hmm. They're feeding the damn country. Somebody's got to grow it. Yeah. And it's the farmers that are, are doing it. They're picking on the farmers right now for their water. You know, they, they don't consider what the farmers are going to feel. You know, well, we need our water out here. We need to fill the lake up. Well, we need the water, too. You can't take the, that water because you ain't going to have nothing to eat. If you like to eat, you better leave farmers alone. I just got a little piece down here. And it's all in grass. Cut grass hay to raise cattle. Run 180 head of cows. Well, that's a pretty nip and tuck operation to get, make it a go of it. If you can put a 
$1,000 in your pocket above your expenses, you're doing damn good. It's a way of life. That's all we know. I spent 39 years at Thiokol, and I hated every goddamn minute of it. Because I got somebody standing over the top of me telling me what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Well, on a farm, you make a mistake, you pay for it. And you don't make that mistake the second time. But you ain't got nobody standing over the top of you telling you what to do and how to do it and why. That's the only consolation a person's got. Because you're your own boss. I mean, there's no more, they don't, they're not building no more farm ground. That's a problem. Look how many farms out here. You don't see houses like Salt Lake, Roy, Sandy, all the way from Draper, all the way back out by Kennecott now. That's all houses down there. All those farms are gone. Okay. They used to be pastures, dairy cows down Sandy, all the way through there. And you take all that up this area, what are you going to have? Nothing. If you take the water away from that and it dries up and you put all houses in here, that takes a lot of jobs out for everybody in this whole valley. We got the ground. What good's the ground? You can't raise nothing on it without the water. The best thing to raise right now is a house. I mean, for dollars an acre, you can't farm that out, but most people are farming. They're not going to sell their ground. They don't care how much they get out of it. They're going to farm. They make $10 an acre or $20 an acre, they're going to keep farming. They're not going to sell it to housing. And you start taking, talking, taking water away, you know, like talking, somebody's going to take your guns away, it's about the same scenario. Somebody's going to get shot. <laughs> Yeah. There's been more people killed over water rights than there has been in all the gunfights that the Old West ever had. Because it's your life. It means your life. Is the bottom line of that water is represents your life. All comes right straight back to water. That's the way I, I feel about all of it. That's Galen Anderson and Wayne Aoki. They're farmers in Box Elder County. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Some of the people we've been talking to about the health of Great Salt Lake, about drought and climate change in the West, have said it's time for a reckoning with agriculture. And the questions you're hearing are, can we or should we continue to raise crops in the same ways with the same assumptions and laws? Already, you're starting to see some changes. Last year, lawmakers passed a bill that allowed farmers to lease their water to help preserve the lake. It's a bill that was sponsored by Joel Ferry. He was in the House of Representatives then. These days, he's head of the state's Division of Natural Resources, so he'll oversee water policy. But Ferry also happens to be a farmer. In fact, he told us when someone first meets him and asks what it is he does, that's the title he leads with. There's something that uh, really kind of gets people's attention when I tell them I'm a farmer or rancher from northern Utah. That's where my heart is. That's what I love to do. That's who I am. Now, maybe this is like circumstantial. It's just the way it worked out. But why are you a farmer and a rancher? 
it kind of took a, a long route to get there. I grew up, I'm fifth generation, a farmer rancher from West Corinne up in Box Hill County. And, um, you know, growing up, I would help on the ranch. I'd irrigate, I'd work cattle, do all of that. Um, I loved a lot of the work I loved sometimes as a teenager. I didn't, though. It was long, long hours. My friends are out playing. I'm changing water. Yep. And so it, it took me a little time to get there. But after I was married, you know, I, I went to Utah State, got a degree in economics, got married, um, started raising a family. And I was working right here at downtown Salt Lake at Zion's Bank. Doing what? This, uh, I was a, a loan officer. I was yeah. an analyst for the bank, then a loan officer, just doing banking. Yeah. And it was a great career. But as my children started to get a little bit older, my wife and I sat down. We said we kind of recognized that we were missing something. We worked some things out, made some opportunities for ourselves, and were able to move our family up to Box Hill County and and uh, kind of make a life for ourselves up there. And I transitioned over to help my dad and my uncle and, and become a full-time farmer, rancher. <laughs> Hours went way up and the pay went way down, but it's been good. For you know over, over 10 years, 12 years, that's what I did full-time, making a living off the land. It's what's in my blood, and I don't think I can ever get that out. What does a farmer understand? We're talking about this larger question of water. Yeah. We're talking about the lake. We're talking about the effects of, you know, a drought and growing development, all these needs for water. And the, the lake is, of course, you know, right up there. But what? So what is a farmer and a rancher, what do they understand about the issue of water that some of the rest of us might not? I think that um, farmers and ranchers understand the true value of water, that Water is what provides life for us here in the West. Without water, there is no life. We don't live. We don't survive. And we're so reliant upon that limited resource. There's a reason that we fight so passionately for our water, for our water rights. It's because we recognize how important it truly is. You know, it's what provides the economic value for the living. It's what provides for our families. And we can see the direct impact of when we put water to the landscape, how impactful it is. Um, and, and because of that, I think that we value water in a little bit different way than, than someone in the city, someone using it just to water their grass so it's nice and green and it looks nice. And um, we have a different perspective. It's not easy to make a living off the land. When you hear people say, that all sounds great, and it's terrific that you, you, you feel connected to that land and you say that, but you also came up, all farmers and ranchers did, in an environment that was created by certain ideas in the past about water law and culture and beneficial use and use it or lose it. So you have that sentiment, but you also waste a lot of water. How do you respond to that? Because I think there's that sentiment out there. There is that sentiment. And I think that it's a somewhat of a misperception <laughs> to say that we waste water. Producers in general, farmers, ranchers, guys on the land, we, we care about the water. We don't want to waste it. And we want to try to be as efficient as possible with the water that we do have. It, it's, it's, it's this misnomer of you're wasting water, you're, you're growing alfalfa, you're just shipping it overseas for mm -hmm. a low-value crop mm -hmm. or whatever it may be. I think we have to go back a little bit and look at the, the history of water. So – why 
do we have the water that we have today? Why did Utah get a certain allocation of the Colorado River, right? And it goes back to this fundamental principle of priority. Yeah. Whoever used the water first still gets to use it first today. They're in priority. That's really the foundational principle of water law in Utah and in the West. And that's really what's allowed us to have the water resource today to let our cities grow, to allow us to expand and and our population to thrive. We just have to be mindful of that, that agriculture provides significant benefit to our rural communities, but also our urban communities. If we know water's going to be short, we plant different crops. Instead of planting corn, you plant wheat instead (laughs) of, you know, or you may plant 90 acres instead of 100 or, or whatever the situation may be. When you have 100 taps, every one of those taps needs water. Every one of those homes wants water when they turn it on. So you, you all of a sudden you take out that flexibility. And so that's part of that, having an understanding of the benefit that agriculture provides to our systems. And well, But what do you think is at the heart of that that misapprehension, that misunderstanding? Why is it – like do you think that there is this – kind of urban-rural divide here. People in the city, and maybe it's ideological, maybe it's you know political progressives looking at conservatives in the rural areas saying they, they, don't, they don't have progressive ideas about how to deal with water like we do in the city. Um, they don't have the same sensibilities. I mean, do you, do you think about what that sure. divide I, is like? I mean, I, I think about it every day, and I, huh. I see it. But I also think that it's, it's, it is. It goes back to somewhat of a, a, a fundamental lack of of understanding of what is it that we're trying to accomplish. Hmm. I go and and meet with our agriculture community, and they want to be more efficient. They want to do better, right? They are working to get those tools. And it's it's easy to, in this divide, to say, well, agriculture, you're 70% of the water use. So let's point the finger at you. You're the problem. And I say agriculture is part of the solution. Because, but are they part of the problem? Before you get to well, the solution part, how, how do you respond to that we, part? We are it? all part of the problem. Okay. <laughs> Every, okay, you go back to it. We are in a terminal basin. Yeah. Every drop of water that falls ends in the Great Salt Lake, yeah. right? And it gets consumed along the way. And, and so to, to try to point the finger and say oh, it's all on the back of agriculture or, or even it's all on the back of you know, mineral extraction on the lake or industrial use in the city or whatever it may be, every one of us has a piece of that pie, has a piece of the um, blame, which means that we're all in this together and we all have part of the solution. Now, So thinking at, it's just one thing is just short-sighted. It is. It is. It's, it's much broader than just one thing. And I think that we have to look at it from a top-to-bottom perspective <laughs> and say, okay, big picture, how can we, every one of us, do a little bit better? And I'm, I'm really encouraged, you know, specifically talking about agriculture because there's a lot of opportunity there hmm. because there's ways that we can become more efficient. There's ways we can make investment with agriculture to help them optimize their water. It doesn't mean that they stop farming, but maybe we farm in a little bit different way. Maybe that instead of an open, you know, wild flood irrigation, we can go and, and go to a drip irrigation. You've or, done that, right? So I've you've done some. You, so yeah. you start with – Flood irrigation used to be what everyone did, right? And now it's – so I guess the well, question is – or am I right? Am I wrong about that? Like it seems to me that there is an effort to change the systems, reform the systems, 
Is everyone on board or is there resistance? No, like, how I'm, does it work? It, uh, I mean, not everyone's on board, but it takes time. Yeah. Right? It takes time. And, and, hmm. and part of it is a generational shift that has to take place. Part of it is it's really expensive. And so what, what we've seen is conversion from flood to pivots, conversion from open flood with dirt ditches to a lined pipeline hmm. with what we call uh, a riser system. The NRCS has been promoting a lot of that. But, but just – Every every upgrade provides some benefit, some additional increase to efficiency. What we have to look at is the incremental benefit and then understand some of the impacts so that we're making sure that we're moving the needle in the right direction. There seems to be a, a sentiment there. And I don't know if it's growing or not. I shouldn't say. Um, but in light of these realities that we're talking about, climate change and drought, that we're going to have to rethink – the place of agriculture in the mythology of the West and the mystique of the West. I wanted to get your where, what you think about this. Is one of our guests told us there's this myth that's connected with agriculture that you know there's this agrarian ideal that Jefferson thought of, but it doesn't work in the same way. This side of the continental divide, it doesn't mm. work that way in the arid West, for example. And we've now come to a point where we may need to maybe question some of the assumptions we had about agriculture in this place? Do you think – what do you think about that? I think that we have to be realistic with the resources that we have. So I think that agriculture plays a critical place and role long term. Really, the, some of the pressures against agriculture are development that's occurring at a rapid pace. Agriculture is getting put out um, and those resources are being consumed. You know, we have to ask ourselves as a society, does agriculture have a place? So as a people, I think that we have to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And what can we do to make sure that we have locally grown produce, locally raised proteins, beef and pork and lamb and, and all of the – and chicken and these other things that we have? You know, as a people, we're kind of at a crossroads right now. Mm -hmm. Do we want to push agriculture out or, or are they an integral and important part of our society? And I think from a quality of life perspective, we really increase and improve that quality when we have local farms – we can go down to the produce stand and buy a locally raised dozen ears of corn, sweet corn, in the summer. Or get a watermelon or a cantaloupe. Buy some fresh tomatoes. You know, all those things really add – me personally, I love and I enjoy doing that. And um, those experiences add value to life. You know, I think that we have to look at is it worth having a little more water-wise landscaping, maybe a little higher density zoning, more condos, more townhomes, more – you know, affordable housing, those types of things to help protect some of our agriculture lands that are highly productive. When well, you, you know what the response is going to be from some. They're going to say, wait, what are you saying? Agriculture, in order for us to have really great tomatoes at the farmer's market, we can't mess with agriculture because it's – but what you're saying is we need to make all of the changes here in the city and you guys get to do what you want in the country. Well, again, agriculture needs to adapt to modern technology. And but we, Here's something, but it's not just on the back. I guess my point is this this question is not just on the back of agriculture, right? The solution. Our cities are And that's the perception you're saying that everyone thinks it's it's all got to change in the agriculture. You say everyone's got to change is what you're saying. Right. Because one of the things that um, University of Utah economics professor Gabriel Losada, he told the Salt Lake Tribune it's been a while back now. He said the state is not going to solve its water problems without – this is how he put it – serious concessions from the agriculture sector. So it sounds like you agree with that. 
But it sounds like you're also saying there also have to be concessions in other sectors and in other places. Yes, and 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 I read that report mm-hmm. from the professor, and th- there was a lot of things I took issue with. I think that the concessions from agriculture are optimizing what we're doing. Let's grow more using less, and we can do that. It takes a lot of time. It yeah. takes a lot of investment. And for the most part, agriculture is on board with that, and they want to do that from what I've seen. But to say that our answer is to get rid of all farms, is that a society that we want to have? I don't think so. I don't think that's a world we want to live in. It's, I, I wonder if people think then, no, we don't want you to stop growing tomatoes. Or- tomatoes, but do you have to grow so much hay and alfalfa? Yeah. What do you say to that? Well, uh, that that alfalfa plays a and sell role. it to China, which right. is the impression. Right? It, it is, yeah. but I think again, it, it can't have a one size fit all to say we can't grow alfalfa anymore in the state of Utah. It, it's not right. It's not. It's not the proper role of government to do that. But it, I think, I think incentives and leading our agriculture producers along this path of guys. Let me show you what we can do mm-hmm. and what you can do. How you can be more productive using less. At the end of the day, that's how we get there. We have, to, we have to look at this thing again holistically, top to bottom. I think that we individually have to say, what is my impact? What is my impact on the water cycle, on the environment, on my community, and balance that out? When you told the New York Times that if we don't take some really dramatic action, there's going to be this environmental nuclear bomb go off. A lot of people – you caught a lot of people's attention with that. Potential. Potential. Environmental right. nuclear Potential, bomb. Potential, yeah. Um, what did you mean when you said some pretty dramatic action? What well, did you have in mind? That quote and in the interview that they did with me came up before the legislative session last year, right. so 22. Where you sponsored a, 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 an important bill that passed. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and that was part of that dramatic action. I get it. At the time, Great Salt Lake did not have water rights, could yeah. not hold water rights. Did not, we couldn't deliver water to the lake in an effective manner. You know, there were some ancillary rights on the periphery, but nothing significant. In addition, as a state, we weren't – we hadn't made investments necessary that would go to the lake, that would go to benefit conservation and look at the, the broad approach. And since that time, we have taken those dramatic steps that I've talked about. Now, there's still some more that we need to do for sure. But last year, nearly a half a billion dollars of investment in conservation – we passed policies like we created the water a water trust for Great Salt Lake. Um, House Bill 33, which was in-stream flows, allows the lake now to hold water rights, and water right holders upstream can specifically shepherd that water down to the lake. We passed legislation on turf buyback. We created the, the first statewide turf buyback program in the country. We did a secondary meter program where every connection by the year 2030, every every connection has to be metered. Again, monumental shifts that all add up. So all of these things that we did, all of these great policy moves, these are the kind of monumental and significant shifts that I was referring to. And then since then, even this legislative session, we're looking at some really big additional moves, big funding in particular. I mean, Doug, we have a – I like to say we have a, a toolbox that's full of really sharp tools. Now we need to put them to work. And that work means making the investment to accomplish um, – We're at the money part is what you're saying. We're at the money part. Now, yeah. there's still changes that need to be made. Yeah. I can tell you, I mean – you know, there, there's policies that we're looking at changing or updating that will be impactful. Um, and then just, I'll tell you, being director of natural resources really opened my eyes up to the vast scope of what we're dealing with. 
the challenges that we have ahead of us are immense. And they're going to take incredible investment. We don't have time for inaction. I think collectively as Utahns, we're ready for that. It's going to take a little bit of pain from everybody, but everybody pitching in a little bit makes a big difference in the end. Joel Ferry, thank you very much. Thank you, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Joel Ferry, he's a farmer and rancher in Box Elder County, also, of course, the director of Utah's Department of Natural Resources. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. There's a lot happening here at KUER. Get a glimpse behind the scenes with Station Insider. Sent to your inbox every Friday, Station Insider includes KUER news stories from the past week and the latest national headlines. Plus, sneak peeks at upcoming station happenings, new projects, and other must-know updates from NPR Utah. Sign up today at KUER.org newsletters. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about the agriculture part in the story of water in the West. It's hard to ignore the statistic that eventually comes up when you're talking about where the water in Utah is being used. Most of it, three quarters of it, goes to agriculture, even though it represents a fragment of the state's economy. But we were reminded this week that's not how people in the West or even in the country really measure the value of agriculture. Joel Ferry said it had a mystique. The historian Greg Smoke called it a myth. Smoke is the director of the American West Center, and he says there's this great divide between the practical benefit of agriculture and the cultural weight we give it. And it's been that way since the beginning of the country. Agriculture is at the root, no pun intended, at the root of American political culture going back to the founding generation. In the West, in Utah, in the Intermountain West, in what we might call the Mormon cultural region, there is um, an even more important or slightly different take on it that is related to the mythos of Mormon migration, Mm -hmm. of persecution, exodus, arrival in a desert, and then this work to make the desert blossom like a rose. And so that is the unique, I would say, um, Intermountain take on a larger American cultural place that agriculture was held. All right. So let's talk about the larger national ideal. Uh, and maybe it's Jefferson. I, everyone talks about how it's the yeah. Jeffers, Jeffersonian it notion. Yeah, he's, he's the easy one to go to. I yeah. mean, Jefferson was not the only member of the founding generation to um, revere agriculture. Um, But he certainly is the most adamant, the most widely read. He is the most vocal proponent for it. And let's preface this by saying that the idea of agriculture is not just being a necessity, but being a moral occupation Mm. goes far back in Western European thought, back to Greek and Roman republics. Jefferson had read widely throughout all of this history. And so for him... Agriculture was the crucial way to sustain the republic, right? So Jefferson is what we might call a little r Republican. Yeah. He wants he he wants a republic that is of the people. And of course, this is the great irony here. Of course, is we're talking about an enslaver who owned two hundred human beings. Yeah. We always have to put that 
out there. But for him, what made the United States different and better and exceptional, it basically had a reset button that was hit when Europeans came across the ocean. There was all of this free land. And again, the other important factor, it's mm-hmm. not free land. It's no. indigenous land. And not their right? land. It's not their land, but they see it as such, yeah. right? And what that meant was for Jefferson that the United States could expand across space rather than through time. <laughs> and what I mean by that is he would look at Europe and he loved European culture. He loved European wine and thought and books, but he also saw Europe as – old and jaded and corrupt. And he linked that to the aristocracy, to the rise of a working class and industrialization. And he believed that the United States could remain free of that. And that would allow the republic to survive. And so the link here with agriculture is this longstanding belief that agriculture was a truly moral occupation, right? One in which an individual had a greater good, fed more people than himself or his family, that society rested on that. And that becomes this belief that farmers are, in a sense, the moral base of a society. You know, Jefferson, his view of history was that republics rose and fell depending upon the virtue of the citizenry. Mm -hmm. And so a virtuous disinterested, when I say disinterested, I don't mean they don't care. I mean, they're not in it for their own self-interest. Right. A a virtuous, disinterested citizenry was essential. Without that, corruption increased and the republic was in danger. So – okay. So in the early days of the country then, agriculture, certainly by Jefferson anyway, is seen as the core of the economic and the political culture. But then his vision, as you say, has to expand west as Mm -hmm. the country goes. So – This is one of the things you've mentioned. As we head west as a country, this vision that he has runs headlong into the environment of the American West. So as we move west, how did Jefferson's ideal translate as water runs out? Yeah, that's a a gradual process, right? So the first frontier – is is really the Trans Appalachian Frontier? No, no, right? right. So the Midwest. I'm talking about when we get right. When here. We get out here. Yeah. It's but what I'm saying is that's a that's a necessary experience, hmm. and the federal government will pass numerous laws to essentially distribute the land to individuals, yeah. real settlers, as they would say, as, as the bona fide settlers, people who are actually going to live on the land and use the land, hmm. and a lot of. American citizens who take up that Jeffersonian ideal, they become squatters. They just move out there and start taking up the land. And by 1841, the United States passes a preemption act, which allows them essentially first dibs on the land they have squatted upon. By the time we start pressing out onto the Great Plains, um, we're in the midst of the Civil War, really. And Congress passes the ultimate expression of Jefferson's vision, which is the Homestead Act. Now, the Homestead Act is is one of those laws that is revered by Americans but often reviled by historians. <laughs> historians have been wildly critical of it. In the past decade or so, there's been some reassessment of the success of the Homestead Act. Um, it is far more successful in places like Nebraska and Kansas and the eastern Dakotas than it will be farther west. In the farther west, you get, of course – 
you get into the true arid regions of the United States, as John Wesley Powell would have, have deemed them. That's one of the reasons why, you know, the initial migration to the West, the overland migration, jumped right over the plains mm. in the Intermountain West and was headed towards the Willamette Valley of Oregon or the Central Valley of California, where, where the type of agriculture that was possible in the East yeah. was it was it's far more familiar for for those those folks. So that's where they are going. In the meantime, you know, you see the Intermountain West fill in. Yeah. And this is where, again, the myth and the reality are different. Gold rushes, silver strikes, these are the kind of things that fill in the Intermountain West far more rapidly than, than Yeoman farmers. Does. Yeah, the Yeoman farmers. But you get instant cities. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at the rise of places like Denver um, or any, any small – I joke about this all the time. If you drive across Nevada and you find ghost towns everywhere, invariably – there is a sign that says this was the first or the second largest city in Nevada for three years. <laughs> right. right? It's, it's everywhere. Um, so that kind, of, that kind of development, though, is not in line with America, many Americans' visions of themselves. Mm. Right? But the West has always been urban. Mining and other industries have always been drivers of development and population increase. So dealing with the arid environment then, what do you do? Well, you start to pass other laws like the Desert Land Act, which upped the amount of acreage but was supposed to be linked to irrigation. But it's never, it's never a great success. And then the federal government ultimately takes over this, this process in 1902 with the Reclamation Act, creates the Reclamation Service, later the Bureau of Reclamation. And I mean, you think about that, it's the whole name of the organization. It's reclamation. Mm. We're going to reclaim this land. We're going to turn it into something pro productive and yeah. useful. And the Jeffersonian ideal is still there, right? It's supposed to be going to, to bona fide settlers. And it's supposed to provide you know, small far family farms in the American West. But of course, the Reclamation Act is, is not a success either. None of those projects are... It, it creates an infrastructure for water in the West, but it doesn't reclaim the West in the way of that Jeffersonian ideal. And this is something Powell recognized, of course. He, he estimated that 3% of the land in the American West could be successfully irrigated. Today, about 2% of Utah is, yeah. is irrigated. Greg Smoke, he's an associate professor of history at the University of Utah, director of the American West Center. So we've been talking about where agriculture fits in the myth of America. When we get back from a break, we'll talk about how the myth plays out in Utah, in the West. Back in a moment, this is Radio West. Take the story wherever you go with KUER's mobile app. Our live streams are your on-the-go connection to KUER News and KUER podcasts like Radio West and State Street. Check in on what's happening around the globe with the BBC World Service or relax and wind down with classical KUER. Download KUER's mobile app today. It's available for free wherever you get your apps. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today we're asking, has the time come for a reckoning with agriculture in Utah? The pastoral ideal of working the land is at the heart of the American mythology, but can we or should we continue growing crops in an increasingly arid West? We have with us the historian Greg Smoke. He's director of the American West Center. 
Okay, so well, let's talk about the Utah part of this. Where does Utah fit? How is it different? Is it in any important way? What, you know, the ag- agrarian model laid out by Brigham Young, for example, mm-hmm. you mentioned this idea of exodus. So clearly he imposed his own sort of biblical moral notions on the way to develop the West, I suppose, and also keep his people together, I guess. To keep his people together and to keep others out. Yeah. Right. So this is So this is I, the distinction, right? Yeah. And you know, I always tell folks, you know, that that Mormon history is very much American history, but it's always very different at times. It, so agriculture for Brigham Young for the first this these early generations of Mormon pioneers was both absolute survival mm-hmm. and it was a cultural um, imperative as well because it it built community. When Brigham Young leads this exodus west. He knows he's coming here, right? He's read all these reports. He's just wandering around looking for a place to go. The Wasatch Front, the Wasatch Oasis Zone really represents the only possibility for the type of agrarian, communitarian society Hmm. that he wants to establish between the Great Plains and California. And he knows he doesn't want to go to California because there's a lot of other folks there already. Yeah. When I say it's an absolute matter of survival, yeah, that's how they're going to survive at first. (laughs) We celebrate Pioneer Day on July 24th, but the advance party of pioneers actually arrived a day earlier on the 23rd. The very first thing they did was build a small dam across City Creek Canyon and start farming potatoes. They planted potatoes. Um, So they're doing irrigated agriculture from from the instant because winter's coming and they need to feed themselves. But then there's also this model of the community. Mm-hmm. And this this agrarian communitarian society, small, based on small farms, small farms and small towns. And yeah. this is the here's a here's a real distinction when we think about the spatial organization of Utah. Geographers and historians talk about a Mormon cultural landscape, mm-hmm. and you can see this down in San Pete County, in a place like Spring City, mm-hmm. right? Compact settlement, yeah, and. Small irrigation ditches running along the streets, the roads, Lombardy poplars, all of these different kind of indicators. But the main thing is it's compact settlement with the fields that everyone has surrounding that core. The Jeffersonian ideal in the early 19th century led to, to what we call homesteading and to independent homestead. You kept and it yourself? You have it yourself. You might be two miles from your neighbor, yeah. right? So you're thinking of, of a square mile yeah. being a section of land. You know, these – if you fly across Nebraska, that's what you see out the window of the plane, right? right? You see the, the square mile, the, the one section of land. You see a house and, and outbuildings on one portion. Then another mile. So there's another one, mm. right? This type of isolation. This was not the ideal for Brigham Young. Yeah. He wanted right? community. He wanted it, you to be able to get to the ward house. Right. And this is – it largely looks like Puritan New England. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, Brigham Young and many of these other early leaders of the From church England, are yeah. – from that place. They yeah. are of that culture, right? So they want to re- reestablish this communal society and take care of each other, right? And so for that reason, you know, industrial development is not something mm-hmm. that Brigham Young wants. He really wants people to remain in agriculture. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I wonder, do you think that if – Brigham Young is trying to maintain this community of saints in these small towns with small farms. Are there vestigial elements of that ideal today in the rural 
towns of Utah? Do you still see – does that notion remain even though the economic conditions are yeah. different, all of those things? You know, I would say absolutely. I think that you know, the cultural ideal remains, the mythos remains even when agriculture shifts towards a commercial mm-hmm. capitalist agriculture, which happens really the 1890s and the first decade of statehood. You see – Utah's agriculture really shift towards commercial agriculture away from that self-sufficiency. And that doesn't mean the mythos goes away. That doesn't mean you know the, the, the Pioneer Day Parade yeah. doesn't go away. The idea that self-sufficiency and family and community are all tied to agriculture, even when you start to see a decline in actual farm employment mm. – in in small town Utah, fewer and fewer people are going to be engaged actually in farming. They may live in small towns in what we might deem rural areas, but fewer and fewer people do. I mean, until today, where it's about one point three percent of Utahns actually work on farms, right. which is spot on with national average, by the way, about one point three percent nationally. Hmm. Um, but that doesn't change the way people think about it. And you know, I'm always surprised at people who are truly urban, who have lived their entire lives, but you know, they feel in touch with the land. They revere agriculture. They have relatives who might have farmed or still do mm-hmm. farm, and they do not see themselves as um, urban, commercial individuals. They see themselves as tied still to the land. So he- here are some of the numbers – that always come up in this discussion now. We, we talked about the, the powerful mystique then mm-hmm. of, of agriculture. Alfalfa and hay represents nearly 70% of the 5 million acre feet of water that's diverted in Utah mm-hmm. every year. Agriculture is what, 0.2% of the state's domestic product. Alfalfa is. Alfalfa, Alfalfa is, is point two. The, yeah. yeah. Agriculture is... A little bit under 1%. A little under 1%, which... Not a lot. Not a lot, but also in line again with national with national average. average. Okay, so I guess the question is, um, I guess we're talking about this sort of. It's it's not proportional, right? Right? Well, is, is that where we look up? at? If you look at the sheer numbers, right, and you think about. If you looked at it in just a simple objective way of how do we feed ourselves yeah, and what is the cost-benefit analysis, I think a lot of – most folks would fall on the side of, yeah, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? So the, the most of the GDP that comes from agriculture comes from livestock and from dairying. So alfalfa, of course, literally feeds into that side mm-hmm. of the economy. But we also export about a third of the alfalfa that's grown – in the state of Utah every year. And I mean, there's reasons for it. It keeps farmers in business. It keeps that agricultural way of life alive. Mm-hmm. But if we looked at it simply in, in those terms and we looked at it in, of course, during a mega drought, as we see the increasing impacts of global warming, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to a lot of people in the state. But to others, perhaps a majority. It makes all the difference. It makes a big difference. I mean, maintaining that agricultural identity remains critical. I did a, I did a talk up in Hiram not too long ago, and I was talking about you know, this very topic and what are the, what are the stats? What do we think about this? And of course, the, the immediate response from 
from an audience member was no farms, no food. Yeah. That's the mantra. That is. And that's absolutely true. But yep. agriculture in terms of Utahns feeding themselves, I mean, that that went away a long time ago. Like everyone else in this country, we are embedded in an industrial agricultural economy. And much of um, the vast majority of the calories we consume come from other places. Right? So, so how should we compare then and weigh the practical benefits of, of local agriculture, let's say, to the less tangible ones? And by less tangible, I guess you could say the ones that preserve open space, keep massive agribusiness from taking over the means of production in this country, although it's already – Maybe yeah. there is the argument. You know, it connects people to the land. I mean, all of the benefits that you see and you feel when you go to a farmer's market and meet the people who grow food right. in a community, how are we supposed to measure and weigh that sort of abstract, less tangible benefit against the fact that it's Maybe one percent right. of the economy. Yeah, like, how do you weigh those things? How do you think oh, about that? I, that's that's a question that I maybe other folks, philosophers, might be able to answer. And you know, I, I guess I I don't look at it in that that sheerly objective way. I think hmm. that there's there's more to life than an objective measure of where do you get the calories, and yeah. we might as well just be squeezing food out of a tube. Yep. Yep. Right. You know, mm-hmm. we might as well be drinking Tang and and whatever. <laughs> right. You know, take your protein pill, Major Tom, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, we there's more to it than that. I think that there are ways to rethink agriculture and water use, beginning with changes, you know, in the law that will allow farmers to sell or lease water without fear of losing their water mm-hmm. rights. I mean, one of the reasons that farmers do cling to that water right and overuse water at times is because if they don't use it, they fear they're going to lose it. And that goes back to prior appropriation and our our, our basic water law in the American West and Utah and the West. You know, I just – I don't – as much as I'm an urban dweller and I see the real statistics, I I don't want to live in a country that's so draconian that we Mm -hmm. go out there and say, guess what? Your way of life is gone. I mean as a Euro-American, right, Mm -hmm. we did that to native people. I don't want to. I don't want to do that to other people. I mean, that may sound odd, but you know, respecting that way of life. Obviously, we have to also, though, be realistic about that future, and it's it's pre- be realistic about that present. Right. So these are questions. These are really tough, thorny questions. I don't well, here's know another thorny answer. question then. I don't want to ask you if farmers and ranchers are good stewards of the land because I think most everyone would say, of course they are. Yes, they are. But can they be trusted, farmers and ranchers, to make this transition themselves? Because they have the same – when you talk to them, it seems they say they have the same environmental imperatives of people living in cities who worry about the effects of climate change because they're impacted – by that, those environmental changes, you know, they're worried too. They're, lo- they're losing money. Um, so why wouldn't they be interested in changing? And so can we trust them to do that? Again, a very, very difficult question um, 
to answer. And I would say there's going to be a, a, a range of responses. I mean, there are going to be some people who see that and want that. There are others, though, that will say, you know, the survival of my family, my economic well-being is at stake and I'm not going to do that. That same talk I did up in, in Hiram not too long ago, Darren Perry, who is the former chairman of the Northwest Band of Shoshones, was in the audience and we were talking about this afterwards. And he said, well, you know, we're going to use the water right we have with the massacre site. And we're going to keep that water in the Bear River to support um, – to support um, – um, Great Salt Lake, it's going to flow downstream. And then another audience member who was a ditch master up there said, it'll never make it there. Somebody else will divert it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that over time, um, that change, we, we, I think we can trust most folks. I really do. I, I hope so. Um, well, let me just I say, think that so- if we change, again, back to those laws, you know, if, yeah. we, if we change some of those, those structures, well, when we well, then with, we can see if the change will. Okay, happen. we spoke with Joel Ferry this week, who you know, head of the Division of Natural Resources and a farmer. Um, he said they they already are. We already are changing these things. I mean, mm-hmm. the bill that he sponsored last year related to water rights, and yeah. it passed. So, so we said yes. Of course, we can be trusted. You maybe I you know I I, I still I think the jury's still I think we will we will see. I think it's any type of cultural change takes. Time and you know I, I don't mean to suggest that changing one law is going to instantly flip the switch and then all of a sudden everything is fine and we are all on the same page. Um, but I think that in this country, because of those deep cultural meanings of agriculture, you know, f- f- people who live on the land say this is our right. We have always done this. This is a very American way to live. Mm. And we don't see why we should give – why should we pay the cost for everyone else? You know, And, and so I, I think that over time, there very well might be a change. It's not going to be instantaneous. But I think you know, trust has to be there. Mm-hmm. You have said you know, to that question that comes up, are, are we going to have to have now a reckoning with the idea of agriculture? And what you've said is we need to have a reckoning with ourselves. What, yeah. do, you, what do you mean? Well, I think it's very easy for urban dwellers like myself to look at, say, alfalfa production in Utah and say, okay, this is way out of whack. You know, 68% of the water goes to a crop that is 0.2% of the GDP. Yeah. And this water could be as much be used better in other ways. You know? Yeah, I would love to see a lot of that water diverted to Great Salt Lake and I would love to see a healthy Great Salt Lake ecosystem that not only preserves all of the living things that depend on the lake, but also improves air quality along the Wasatch Front. I mean, there's some really scary future scenarios out there that are not fantasy. They have happened in other places in the world. They've happened in Southern California. They've happened with the RLC. It can and will happen here. But what I don't want to see is you know, okay, so we divert all this. We, we change the diversion of water from alfalfa to the urban areas, and therefore we just continue growth, growth, growth. And you know, history cannot predict the future like a road map. But if the history of the American West tells us one thing, when water resources are developed, it never quenches a thirst. It leads to more growth and more growth and more growth. Right. So we need to be 
clear-eyed about that. And we need to say, you know, how do we, you know, find a sustainable path forward without just saying, okay, we 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 put all this this water on alfalfa. Now we're just going to put it into subdivisions, yeah. and we're going to have more and more problems with air quality. The water won't reach the lake, and you know, we already hear this year because we're having such a good snow year, people dismissing the drought or saying, well, maybe Great Salt Lake's going to come back. Well, it's one year's not going to change things. And we really need to keep our eye on that end goal of a sustainable, livable place for all Utahns. And that means reckoning with alfalfa, but it also means reckoning with ourselves, looking in the mirror. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Greg Smoke. He's director of the American West Center and an associate professor of history at the University of Utah. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. Our producers are Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Beck Fabrizio. <laughs>